Holly, thank you for reading that. I think there's um, I think there's significance for us sometimes to just be able to hear the entire chapter, to to be able to just read through and to and to look through this entire passage of scripture and to see what all is happening here. Um, it's it's important. It's important in the in the early church when they would gather. That's what they would do. Um, you know, we've we've discussed many times in the book of Acts when the church would get together, they would just read the word of God, and that was all that they needed. Um, and so it's it's important, I think, too, that we put a very high value on coming together and reading and, and just hearing and letting the Word of God speak for itself and soak into our minds. Um, and so hopefully you were, were able to do that uh, through that time. And so um, as, we, as we kind of start chapter 1 of Ezra, uh, I just want to go real quickly over uh, what we covered uh, now two weeks ago in the background and setting. And, and again, I would encourage you, if you, if you missed that, um, it's online now, so go and listen to that. There's no way that I could sum up um, all of the information and the facts and things that, that Ross brought to us about the history of what happened and, and where we're at in just a couple of minutes. So I'm going to hit just some of the high points, um, and then we're going to move into chapter 1. Uh, but just remember that Israel, the people of God, that they have been exiled at this point, and so they are now out of their homeland. They are living somewhere as captives that are n- that is not their home. And, and we're actually going to spend next week talking about what does it mean to be an exile and, and the value um, of exile. Even though in our mindset when we think exile captive, like that doesn't seem like a very uh, positive thing, um, God uses that and, and redeems that in some very powerful ways. But yet, at this point, God's people, Israel... Um, the ones that God has chosen for himself, they have been exiled. And so they're living in now what is, what is ran by Persia. Um, it, was, it was first conquered by Babylon and now by Persia. And so that's where they're at. Um, and, and we also talked about how the main character of the book of Ezra is God. Um, it's not the guy who wrote it. In fact, Ezra stretches for about a hundred year period uh, from the beginning of his writing to the end. And he's not even in the first part of that. So the first few chapters we're in, Ezra's not even in there. Um, and so what we can get from that, though, is that God, God is the main character throughout this book. And we're going to see what God's doing over and over again. Uh, we said that our that our theme for the series, as we kind of look at the, the book of Ezra as a whole... And then we reflect that onto our lives. Um, we hope that this theme will come across. And that's that we should be rebuilding on the bedrock foundation of Jesus, right? This idea that um, as Ezra and, um, well, first Zerubbabel and then Ezra and then a, another wave um, through Nehemiah comes in, um, they're going to be rebuilding some things. And so we said in our lives, we have foundations in our lives a lot of times uh, that are not solid foundations. They're shaky foundations. And so we uh, need to learn to rebuild our lives on that. Uh, another big theme that we talked about, another idea that we want to see throughout this, um, is, is the, the idea of being um, Christocentric, to have Christ at the center of everything. And um, it's always amazing after you, uh, if you, if you get up and you teach a message, um, like that next week is always when people come with the best illustrations. And so last week, you know, um, I was at the gym and I was listening to a podcast and I heard an illustration about what does it mean for Christ to be the center of everything? Um, but yet we don't, we don't see his name on every page, but yet he is the thread that goes throughout. Um, and the person I was listening to compared it to the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, I don't know if you guys have is, like, read through all seven of the books, um, I believe. Um, but probably most of us have at least watched a few of the movies. Um, if you were blessed like me as a kid, you got to watch some of the really bad movies back in the 
in the early 90s, uh, some really horrible ones that don't sleep for days on end because they're so creepy. Um, but if, you, if, you, if you've read through the Chronicles of Narnia, right, aside from the children, um, right, who, who play a vital point, especially in the, in the first few ones that, we've, uh, that you read, who is the main character, though, in that book? Aslan, right? Aslan the lion. Like, he is the main character. But there are many places in many of the Chronicles that his name's not even written in there. But yet it's this idea that there's this thread that runs throughout, that he is the king and he's coming back to restore. And obviously C.S. Lewis wrote that um, as a picture of Jesus. Um, and I think that's a great illustration to help us to understand um, what, what it means to be Christocentric when we look at the Bible. When we read our Bible, there's a thread of Jesus. No matter where we're at, there's a thread that's either pointing to Jesus or looking back at what he's done. Um, and so as we go through the book of um, Ezra, we're going to see that time and time again. Um, the last bit um, of kind of background information that I want us to know, and again, um, kind of coming late, late to the party, I know I, I, I came across this last, um, this last week in my study for this, and I just thought this is so important that we see this, that we go ahead and cover it, even though it's kind of background stuff, it's important. You see, the book of Ezra is, is when we get to Ezra, there's kind of like a hyperlink. You guys familiar with the hyperlink? What's a hyperlink do? Like you click on it, and what does it do? It sends you to another page. It sends you to something that's related, right? So if you're on a website maybe, and somebody's referring to another blog post or something, right? They may hyperlink that, and you click on that link, and it'll send you back to that original post. Um, that's kind of what Ezra is doing. The, the, the story we get in Ezra is really a hyperlink to the Exodus story. Um, and as we go through this, we're going to see time and time again little things that's like, Oh, that is that is way too coincidental to be coincidence. That that that's what Ezra is. He's writing this. He's trying to remind the readers of what God did in this huge moment. And so he's he, again and again in the story is going to kind of hyperlink back to that. And so Exodus, so Ezra um, and the return is really a new Exodus. And so Ezra kind of takes on the role of Moses. We'll see that later on. And then this return back to Jerusalem was like the Exodus out of Egypt um, that they were getting free. Um, and so there's several places that we see this. Um, in our passage today, um, it will, it'll talk about, uh, in verse 6, it'll talk about the articles of silver and gold uh, that was supplied to the exiles by their neighbors. Um, and this correlates, if you guys remember from the Exodus story, of how um, God told his people to go and to plunder the Egyptians, right? And they gave them all this gold and stuff right before they exited. Um, and so it's just kind of a flashback to that moment. Uh, we're also going to see at the end of our passage today how they were brought up um, out of Babylon to Jerusalem, which is which is the same phraseology that talks about um, God's people being brought out of the land of Egypt. Uh, the narrative, again, in both accounts, is going to kind of climax over the Passover um, story. So at the end of Ezra, kind of the highlight spiritually for them was they actually celebrated Passover. If you remember the Exodus story, right, that was that, that meal that they celebrated, the deliverance that God had given to them. Um, so just tons and tons of crossover. Um, we'll, see, we'll talk about in a few weeks about how they make a free will contribution to build this new temple, um, which parallels to that free will contribution that, um, that they made in order to, to build a tabernacle. And so I just wanted us to, to be aware of that. So when we get to points in the book of Exit, or in Ezra, um, it's just a flashback moment to the story of Exodus. And if you, if you think about um, Exodus and what God did, uh, in the book of Exodus, I think that can just enhance our understanding of, of what he's doing here with his people. And, and one of the, the amazingly beautiful things that we see throughout Scripture is that 
it's almost like there are these stories or these themes that are just over and over and over again. Why do you think that's in that? Why do you, why do you think God would, would have his writers put in stories over and over and over again? We need repetition to get it, right? I mean, how many parents do we have in the room, right? If you're a parent, raise your hand, right? How many times do you have to tell your kids to stop fighting before they listen? Ours are... Well, there are a whole lot of ages, but we haven't figured it out yet. Um, my mom, I'm 36 now, and there's still moments, I think, that she hasn't figured out how to get me to, to listen to certain things, right? It's this repetitious idea, and God puts these stories over and over again in his word, so hopefully we can start to grasp onto it and to understand. And I think it also helps us to understand that we, too, are part of God's story. Um, you know, just like what we're going to see here with the, uh, the people in, in Ezra and the struggles that they're going to have and the struggles they're going to have to understand why God does what he does. Um, that's so true for our lives as well. Right. Holly mentioned this morning just that parallel that she drew of coming in and being frustrated because things weren't the way they should have been. Right, And we're going to see that here in the story of, of, of Ezra, of how God's people get frustrated because they get back to the land and it's not what they expected it to be. Um, so it's not just hyperlinked to Old Testament. It's also, it's also a forward link. Is that a word? We'll make it up. It's a forward link um, to our lives as well. Right, And so that's the beautiful thing about Scripture is that um, it's, it just applies to so many things um, in our lives. And so with that kind of as our, as our background and setting, um, we talked about how the series is called Foundation and how we have foundations in our life, right? We have things in our life that we build our life on, and a lot of those things are shaky. Jesus gives the analogy in Matthew 7 of how someone who built a house, right, on a, on a shaky foundation, and then storms come in that person's life, and what happens? It doesn't stand, right? It says that there is great despair in that person's life, right? There was great loss and disaster because of that. Um, and so that is what we are going after in this, in this time in the book of Ezra is to start to rebuild on some solid, solid foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Um, and, I, and I also, um, this week, kind of thinking about foundations, there's a lot of things kind of happening this week as I was studying God, just kind of bringing all kinds of new things. Um, but one of the things that I learned this week that I didn't know um, was in the, in the area of storms, right? So Jesus gives in the, in the picture of the, of the foundations, Jesus says that storms come on both of those houses, the one on the solid foundation and the one on the, the shaky foundation, right? Uh, what I learned about storms this week, and you guys probably know this already because you're way smarter than I am, um, but they, there's a category system for storms, right? And so it goes from one to what? Anybody know what the top category is? Five? Five? And then millennials created six because they just needed to be cool. So, you know, there's probably some out there that say six. But really, there's, there's a system of one to five. And, and those tell you, like, um, those are based on basically the, spin, the speed of the wind and the intensity of that storm, right? So a one has a, has a fairly moderate wind um, associated with it, where a five is you're getting up over 100 miles an hour of wind in just complete intensity, Right, And so I think naturally we think that the higher category, the more intense storms that we have, um, the more damage that they cause. Right? I mean, it would make sense that if I said, okay, which, which storm would be more destructive, a Category 1 or a Category 5? Everybody would say Category 5, right? Of course. Um, what I learned, though, this week was that's not always the case. Um, in fact, in our history, over just, in, in just over the last few years, 
in amounts of damage done, and this is this is basically on amounts of uh, destruction that has happened. Um, does anybody know the two most destructive storms in the U.S. history? They're tied for the amount that they have uh, cost. Any any guesses? Katrina's one. That's yep, Katrina, and Harvey actually. Harvey. So Harvey was a Category Three when it hit, and Katrina was a Category Four when it hit. Both of those costed about 125 billion dollars worth of damage. Um, to the areas that they were affected by. Um, does anybody want to guess? Uh, so, Aaron, you said Sandy, right? That actually comes in at number three, uh, Hurricane Sandy, $74.1 billion. When it hit land, Sandy was a Category 1 storm. Think about that, right? Category 1, the categories don't tell us how, how destructive. Uh, the one right after that was, uh, was Ike, and it was $29.5 billion. It was a Category 2. And I think what we need to understand is that just because the storms in our life may not be intense doesn't mean that they don't cause destruction, right? Um, and in those places where they've been hit the hardest by these hurricanes, uh, they've they started a new code to be able to secure houses to cut down on the destruction. Um, now the code is that you have to secure your house with, with some sort of metal um, or steel ties to the foundation. And they've learned that something about tethering your house to the foundation um, will somehow give you the greatest chance of survival and the least amount of destruction when storms come um, in there. And I think that is uh, what we're going to see this morning is that when we tether our lives to the foundation of Jesus, right, we may get some storms in our lives and they're going to rock things and, and there's going to be debris and there's going to be things that happen. But if we can tether ourselves to Jesus, right, we have the best shot at making it through this crazy storm we call life. Um, and, and I think for all of us to acknowledge, just because we may not be going through an intense Category 5 storm right now, doesn't mean that that Category 1 or Category 2 thing in our life isn't causing destruction. Um, and so I want to set all of that as kind of a foundation, if you will, as we get into Chapter 1 of Ezra. Uh, and as we look at Chapter 1 of Ezra, we're going to see that there are there are essentially three foundational truths that we can build our lives on um, that we're going to see out of this first chapter. So, um, again, if you have your Bibles, and hopefully you do, I would encourage you to open them up this morning with us to the book of Ezra. Um, to the book of Ezra, chapter 1. And if you don't uh, have a Bible, if you forgot yours or you don't have one, um, we do have some over at the information table. Please grab one if you just need it for this morning or you just need it in general. Um, feel free to grab one. Um, Turn your phones on. Um, we're not going to have it up here on the screen because I want us to be in the text together. That's something that we've talked about um, this week was just there's something intentional and, and, and really important for us as we um, look at God's word that we're actually looking at what he's saying in the context. So um, Ezra chapter 1, okay, and we're going to look at these three foundational truths that we can tie our lives to. And the first one we're going to see in, in verse 1 is that the Lord always keeps his promises in accordance to his will. He always keeps his promises. Verse 1 starts out, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, um, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Let's stop right there. Right? That begs the question, okay, what is the, what is the word that came to Jeremiah? Well, see, there was a prophet named Jeremiah um, who had lived uh, about 100 years before this, um, and he wrote about what God was going to do at this point in the life of Israel. Um, he had wrote 
um, and, and prophesied what God was going to do because of their disobedience, because of, because of their um, inability to follow after God completely, and they continued to chase after other gods, um, Jeremiah wrote about what was going to happen. And so if you want to hold your finger in Ezra and you want to flip to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is actually, you flip forward in your Bible, um, which doesn't really make sense because it came before. But our Bibles, remember, are written um, based on the categories, um, the types of writings, more than the chronological events and the orders in which they happen. Um, and so Ezra actually would come at the very end of our Old Testament if, if they were in a chronological order. But Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah chapter 25. And uh, we're going to start looking at verse 11 through, through, uh, through verse 14. And this is kind of picking up in the middle of what Jeremiah is telling the people is going to happen. Um, but it says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. He's talking about where Israel is, Jerusalem. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon the land all the words that I have uttered against them, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. And so this is one of the places that Jeremiah is saying, look, destruction's going to come. Expect it. Get ready for it. Because I'm about to come and destroy everything that you know in Jerusalem. You're going to get taken over. And then there's that promise that even, even these horrific people that are going to take you over, ultimately their judgment is coming, um, and I'm going to take them out as well, which we see is actually what the Persians did. They played that role of taking out the Babylonians. Um, but this is all according to God's promise and his plan. Now, um, if you're in Jeremiah 25, flip over a few more pages to Jeremiah 29. And I want us to look at, starting in verse 10, Again, he says this as he writes a letter to the exiles. Here's what he's saying in verse 10. He says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. Okay, underline that in your Bible. Hold on to it. Write my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you out, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay. Um, and so, so here again, God is saying through the mouth of Jeremiah, you're going to be in exile for a season. You're going to be there for a while. This is the word that it was fulfilled. But, but after that time is fulfilled, I'm going to bring you back out of the land. I'm going, to, I'm going to redeem you back out of this slavery. I think it's also interesting to note as well, I think this is a, just a guiding principle uh, for us, and, and this is just one of those moments to point that out. But in verse 11, um, verse 11, does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound like a familiar passage? Uh, it's one that kind of becomes a bumper sticker theology verse, right? Uh, a life verse, um, a thing. And, and there's nothing wrong with taking that as your life verse um, to realize that God says that he has a plan and he has a hope uh, for your welfare and, and a future for you, right? But we also need to understand what the context of that is as well. And I think that's, that's important as we look at scripture that we understand the context, right? The context is God's going to do all those things, 
but you're going to go through 70 years of captivity and exile, right? And so caution as you claim that verse, right? Um, unless you want to go through through the hard times, um, you know, to realize that, yes, God does promise our good and our welfare and our benefit, but that doesn't mean that everything in life is going to be easy. We're not going to go through trials and temptations and, and hard things in our life. And so, and so it's important here that we understand that the word that was fulfilled in Jeremiah was the word that, yes, Israel would be exiled, but yes, God, after 70 years, would then rescue them back out. Um, it's also important that we understand that this is not the only place that God makes promises in the Bible, right? You guys familiar with that? Um, in fact, one, one commentator's reading said that there are over 30,000 promises that are found within the words of Scripture, right? And, and typically, if you want to know what a promise uh, of God sounds like, it's going to sound something like the word of the Lord said or God said, right? Those are promises because when God says something, he's going to fulfill it because of who he is, right? We believe that God is, and we've already said this word, but sovereign. Um, and there's a lot of baggage that gets attached to that word sovereignty and God's sovereign. Uh, but at the very core of that, it just means that we believe God's going to do what he says he is going to do and that he can do what he says he's going to do, right? And so if, if God says it, it's going to happen because God's big enough to do it. Um, and, and so that's important. Um, and, and these promises are recorded throughout. Um, in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, I have this one up here just so you don't have to flip to it, uh, it says this, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that you may become partakers of the, of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of the sinful, uh, sinful desire. Again, there are these great and wonderful promises that God makes throughout. And so what I would like us to do, just real quickly, just kind of snapshot, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, um, but I just want us to look through a few of these promises that God's made throughout His Word, because I think that's important. I think it's important that we know what God has said so that we can hold on to some of those things in our lives, all right? So, again, this is not exhaustive. These are just a few that I found were, were helpful and important. Um, Again, um, in the Old Testament, as we look at that, God's promise to bless Abraham and his descendants. And ultimately, if you look at that promise, right, God promised that he was actually going to bless the entire world. And so even today, as we sit here in Franklin County, Virginia, probably the furthest place from Jerusalem and Israel and God's people, uh, well, I don't say God's people, but God, the, the Israelite people, <laughs> right, the furthest that you can probably imagine culturally-wise and like geographically wise and everything, right? We're still feeling that blessing that he made to Abraham because of what that promise that he made. Um, and so we still get to, to be a part of that. We get in on that. Um, God promised Israel to be their God and to make them his people. God promised that if we would search for him, that we would find him. God promised that his love will never fail. Um, and God, under his, his covenant with Moses, promised to, to bless the people of Israel if they obeyed and for destruction if they didn't obey. And that, that is what we're seeing fulfilled right here in the book of Ezra is that they didn't obey God. And so that promise of destruction is what happened in their storyline. Okay, uh, let's go to the New Testament and there are uh, some really important promises here, right? God promised salvation to those who believe, right? How incredible is that? That God promised that he would save us from the consequences of our sin and death if we believe. Um, I love the second one. God promised comfort in trials, right? That doesn't mean that we won't go through trials but that he's going to be there with us um, when we go through this. God promised that every spiritual blessing would be ours in Christ in Ephesians. Uh, and in Philippians, he promised that uh, to finish the work that he had started in us. And I'm really, really encouraged by that one, right? Because there's some days that I'm just thinking like, I look at my life and I'm like, 
God, did you just forget what happened, right? Uh, and then you have those moments, right, when you're like, man, God brings you through things in your life and you're like, oh, you were doing all of this in order to continue to work on me, to build me up, to be the person you want me to be, right? And then we can also find the promises that Jesus made in the Gospels. These are so sweet, too. Um, Jesus promised those that are weary and heavy laden, he promised that they could find rest in him, that there's that just sense of resting in him. Uh, Jesus promised abundant life to those that follow him. Jesus promised eternal life to those who trusted in him. And he also, as the good shepherd, those who trust in him, that he's going to hold them securely so that no one can snatch them out of his hands, right? How encouraging is that to know that once you're his, that you're his. You don't have to, to, to worry about some, somebody or something coming and snatching you away from that. Um, and then finally, he promises that he's going to come back uh, for us, for those that are his and that he has um, paid the price for, that he promises that he is going to come back for them. Right, so so there are there are promises, and like I said, there are thousands of them. In fact, I found a there's a George Mueller um, wrote an entire book. You can get it online, a, a PDF, and it's just filled with promises of God attached to Scripture. Um, and I, I printed it out somewhere, and I meant to bring it up here, but in the chaos, it's it's somewhere. Um, but 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 I would encourage you today to be thinking about, starting to think about what. What are the promises in God, right, that God has given to us? Are there promises that God has given to me that I'm not even trusting? I feel like, that, that man, that's just too big right now in my life for God to be able to do that. I know that, I know that in his word he says that he's going to do this and that, that I can trust this. But, man, life right now, it's really hard. Start to think about what are some of those promises that, that we need to hear and what are some of those that we're really having a hard time trusting God. Um, but not only does... Is, is God's promises part of that, but also the Lord does what he says, right? This is the crux of, of this. It's not just that he makes promises, right? We probably all know people who make promises, right? That doesn't really do a whole lot of good. It's only in people that will keep their promise, right? Um, and I think that's the beautiful thing um, as we understand who is making this promise to us, right? Uh, the point is that it's, that it's God making the promise, not us. You see, if I was to make a promise to you this morning, that promise is only going to be as good as I can make that to be. It's only going to be as good as I can follow through on that. And I can promise you that um, I'm going to let you down at some point. I promise you the person sitting beside you is going to let you down at some point. I promise, I promise you the person the closest to you in this world is going to let you down at some point. And I also promise you that you're going to let that person down at some point. Why? Because at the, at the end of the day, right... We are all shaky foundations, right? We are only as good as the promise we can make. And that's why it's so important that we understand that when God makes a promise, it's not like us. Um, it's not like even our frame of reference, you know? I think in our world, almost every frame of reference we have is people breaking their promises. But yet when God makes a promise, it's made based on who He is and that He remains the same. I heard this, uh, this quote that I thought was really good too as we, as we think about God's promises and that's to understand that delay is not deny. Delay is not deny. And so if God has made a promise to you that, that, we've, that we see here, and I think that's what, what probably uh, this crew here in the book of Ezra is going through, right? God had made a promise to, to bring them back out. But that delay in, in, in our timing doesn't mean that God has denied that promise, that God is going to fulfill that promise. I was kind of thinking about that in the context of, of my life, and you know, this really kind of lines up with the story of Nicole and I um, when we first met, um, and the whole idea of delay was not denied because uh, when I met her day one, I knew that I was going to marry her and that she was going to love me forever, and we were going to have beautiful children, and you know, all this sort of stuff was going to happen. 
And she didn't get that message. She got a very different message. And so I really got to live out for a season, for almost a year of delay is not deny. And I knew it. And so I wasn't going to deny it. I continued to pursue after her after many, many failed attempts. Um, And almost giving up, God came in and and did something incredible. Um, And I think that's the point is that this promise, um, God's still going to do it, right? And ultimately, we're even going to see throughout the book of, of Ezra is that this promise of God redeeming his people, of, of bringing them back to the land, this wasn't ultimately even going to be fulfilled when they return and when they reset up the temple and when they get back to Jerusalem, right? That was just going to be a little bit of that because even once they get back, they start to, to get away from God and they start to chase their own ways. Um, ultimately, the fulfillment of that was going to come through the person of Jesus, right? Ultimately, Jesus was going to come and set up a kingdom um, and fulfill that promise that had been made from the very beginning. Did you know that there was a promise that God made about Jesus even from the beginning? Did you guys know that? Even from way, 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 way back? Um, In in Genesis chapter 3, okay, um, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 um, tells us he's talking here to the enemy. So after Adam and Eve, if you guys are familiar with the story, after Adam and Eve had decided to disobey God, to not follow and trust God anymore, um, he, he, he's, he's speaking first to the woman and he talks about what's going to happen and then he talks to the serpent and in verse 14 he tells him this I will put enmity, I'll put strife between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and look at, look at the end of this verse he shall bruise your head this is an analogy that he will ultimately land the death blow to you but in the process of that you'll actually strike his heel so he's going to take a blow in that but you're actually, you're actually going to lose um because of what's going to happen. And this is the first picture of Jesus, the first promise we have of God sending one. Even though the name Jesus isn't in here, this is already one of those starts the little thread of Jesus being put into the storyline that God's going to send someone to come and to save us from our sin. So that's, I think that's important. That's important. And so um, before we move on um, to looking at the next point, what I want us to do is I want us to take like 30 seconds to a minute. I thought this was really cool. Ross had you guys do this last week. So like a good pastor, I'm just going to steal this idea because um, it's, it's really helpful. right? But I want you to take uh, 30 seconds to a minute, uh, grab a couple people around you, and I want you to discuss this question. Um, is there What is one promise of God that you need to be reminded of today? Maybe it was something we read. Maybe it was the promise of Jesus. Um, or maybe it's just something else that God's bringing to your mind. Or... Maybe you already know what that promise is, but you've kind of given up on it because it hasn't happened in your timing. So I want you to take about 30 seconds. But secondly, we're going to see here in our passage that the Lord will use whomever or whatever he chooses to accomplish his will. Um, He's going to use whomever or whatever he chooses to accomplish his will. His will. We're going to see this in, in uh, really in verse four, all the way, or one all the way down to four. So um, picking up where we left off in verse one, it says, "The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia." Um, and I would I would encourage you in this passage especially to underline that word in there, "stirred up the spirit of," because um, that's going to become very important to us as we move forward. But he stirred up the heart of Cyrus so that he made a proclamation excuse me, throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Um, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth that he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. 
Whomever, uh, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, uh, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, who is the God who is in Jerusalem. I'm going to stop right there. Um, so, so we see that God can use whoever, right? God ends up using this pagan king named Cyrus. And, and Ross talked a lot last week about uh, Persia and how God used even their governmental system as a vehicle for which to bring about his plan and his purposes, right? But think about this just for a minute, right? Um, Cyrus, okay, the king here, he was, um, he was, a, he was a non-believer um, that we know of. Um, the, the kind of the, the religion of the time of Persia was something called Zoroastrianism, um, and they believed in another god. It wasn't Yahweh, the god here of, of the people of Israel. Um, and you can even kind of tell this. Look at what he says. He says that he's going to go up and build God a house, right? And we all know that, that God describes himself. God doesn't dwell in houses, right, in places built by men. Um, God is bigger than that, but yet he's using this, this pagan king in order to, to bring that about. It says he stirs up his spirit. Um, I don't go to this translation a lot, but in the message, it actually says that uh, it uses the word prodded. And I think that's a really appropriate understanding is that God prodded this pagan king, right? This probably flashes back in your mind maybe to God and Pharaoh and how God used that uh, pagan ruler, uh, Pharaoh, to, to, to ultimately bring freedom to his people. Um, but here we see God doing that again. He's using this king. Um, and, and this is just a beautiful picture, I think, of God's sovereignty. There's nothing in this world or anywhere that is out of God's control that he can use to bring about his purposes and his will. Um, the writer uh, Solomon in Proverbs uh, 21, verse 1, he says this. He says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of God. He turns it wherever he wills. And so even the most powerful person that we can think about, right? We could say that in our country. The president, right? The president's heart is a stream of water in the hand of God. We ultimately know that, yes, there's a man sitting in a position in a house that, you know, because of that position and other positions, there's authority associated with that. But all of that is within the hand of, of a God, of God who is controlling and using those things to bring about his promises. And so here we see that he even uses a pagan king in order to bring about the deliverance of his people. Um, one little interesting fact, uh, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this reference down. Uh, we won't go into it, but I found it to be really helpful. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 44, uh, verse 28 through the beginning of chapter 45, the first couple of verses there, um, Isaiah the prophet actually prophesied that Cyrus um, would actually, God would use Cyrus in order to do these things, uh, to, to build him a house and to deliver the people. Um, and so a lot of commentators will say that's actually why Cyrus decided to do that because someone had introduced him to this prophet, prophetic writing of Isaiah and he was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use, I'm gonna, I'm, that's got my name in it. So that's actually was his means for a reason behind why he did that. Um, but I think it's, it's just one of those interesting, interesting things to, to write down and take a note. Um, but God's going to use whoever, but also he's going to use whatever he wants to in order to accomplish his will. Look, uh, look, at, verse, uh, look at verses 3 and 4, right? Um, when Cyrus says, whoever the people of Judah may come out and they may re- rebuild the houses, right? But skip down to 4, it says, and let each, what, is your, what does your version say in verse 4? Let each what? 
So mine says survivor. That's what ESV. So I got something different. Am I got anything different than survivor? Sojourner. Sojourner. Okay. Yep. Each survivor, each sojourner, in whatever place he sojourns, wherever he decides to go, right? And and what we need to recognize is that even in the midst of this, even as Cyrus is looking at the people, he's understanding that they are the ones that are left are just survivors of this exile that they've been through, right? They've been through this horrible captivity. Um, and next week we'll paint that picture out a little bit better um, and, and color in some of those lines. But this, this exile and captivity, it wasn't like that they were, you know, a weekend at Panama City or something, you know, where they were just kicking it back for 70 years and, and having this really luxurious time, right? This was, they were away from their homeland. Um, they were, they were, this was just, this was not, even the process of them getting removed from their homeland, it wasn't just like, hey, who would like to go over here to Babylon and live here? It was this very vicious, rough exile for them. Um, and so they had been there. And this idea of, of survivors, those that are left, realizes and, and brings to mind that God sometimes is going to use hard things in our lives to bring about his plan. And this is, this is a really hard uh, truth to swallow sometimes in our lives, right? Um, I think in our heads sometimes we can say, oh, yeah, well, God uses hard things. Like, yeah. But then when you're going through that hard thing or someone you love is going through that hard thing, it's a completely different story, isn't it? Um, and so, but God uses that. And, and that kind of brings up a, a question that I think a lot of people in our world is asking. And I think it's a question that as, as the church, as the followers of Jesus, like we would be remiss if we didn't answer that question. That question is why does God allow? Why would God use, why would God even have pain and suffering and evil, right? Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. He addresses this in his book, um, um, The Reason for God. Um, and it, if you haven't read that book, I would highly, highly encourage you, uh, especially if you have friends or people you know that aren't believers, because he, he, he just addresses a lot of those questions uh, from a very biblical standpoint. But he says, if evil appears to be pointless, right? The question that people ask is, if evil appears to be pointless, uh, to me, then it must be pointless, Right? People are asking that question. If from my perspective in the world, if all this evil and suffering and pain, if it seems pointless from my perspective, then it must not have no meaning. Right? And, I, and, and he says that just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen does not mean that there can't be one. And I think that's a beautiful statement that we need to, to understand is that just because we can't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. In fact, in that same book, he gives an illustration that I think is really helpful. Um, he says that you know, if you were out somewhere and you were, um, you know, if you were out camping somewhere and you went and looked inside of your your pop tent, right? And you go in your tent and you look in there and there's a giant Saint Bernard sitting in your tent, right? It's like, is anybody going to question whether or not there's a Saint Bernard in there? And of course not, right? We can see it clearly. Right? But he goes on to describe that there's this tiny little insect. Um, you guys might have heard this before. They're called noceums. Noceums. Um, and they're so small that you can't even see them, which is really creepy if you've got a bug thing. Right? They're so small that you can't even see them. Like, we might even have them on us right now, and we wouldn't even know it. Which is going to creep me out the rest of the day. So, sorry. Um, but there's these tiny little insects, right? Um, actually, you would know because they bite you, and you're just like, am I going crazy? Or, right? But there's these tiny little insects. You can't see them. Um, and they fly around. They're called noceums. Right? And he says, same example, if you open up your tent and you look in there and you don't see anything in there, right? you're going to be like, 
oh, well, there's nothing there, right? And I think that, that, that illustration paints the picture just because we can't see the reason for something um, from our vantage point doesn't mean that it's not there. Um, and so he goes through, and, and, and uh, this is Keller, again, he gives, us, he gives four reasons why there's pain and suffering and evil in the world that we have. And I think these are important for us to know um, as we kind of move forward with, with, uh, with understanding God. Number one, he says that they're there to enable us to grow, to give us patience, humility, a heightened appreciation of times of joy. Um, you know, there are, there are times that God will use pain in our life to grow us. I mean, if you think back in your own life about the times that God has grown you the most, probably a lot of those came on the wings of a really hard season in your life. Um, I know that's true for me um, and probably for all of us. Um, and there's also this, this thing that happens, I think, sometimes. You know, when we go through hard circumstances and we're kind of at the end of ourselves, what do we tend to do? When we can't figure it out, well, then we go to God, right? A lot of times we use God as that last-ditch effort. Like, when I can't figure it out myself, when I don't know the answer, then I go to God, right? Um, it's, it's the reason that why, you know, after events like 9-11 and these horrific things, that churches start to fill up again. Because when you can't explain things from the rest of the world, it's like, Maybe, maybe, there's this, maybe there's something to God. I'm going to use God. I'm going to go to God as last-ditch effort. But see, I think the amazing thing that happens is that when we go to God in those circumstances, we start to understand and we start to hear the voice of God. And the more that we hear the voice of God, the more we're able to recognize that in other aspects of our life. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's really, really important, is that sometimes God allows and uses suffering in our life to help grow us. Um, it also comes as a consequence of our sin and our rebellion. Uh, we've talked about this, right? But we, we believe as, as followers of Jesus, um, as readers of his Bible, of his word, that we live in a broken world. Um, that's the reason that when we walk around and we scratch our heads and we're just like, man, that shouldn't happen. You know, we shouldn't ever see a kid suffer. There's certain things in the world that we see that are just like, that's just broken. That's just messed up. Right, countries that just have a hatred for one another. Right, we we all kind of look back at that and we're like, that's just not how it should be. Right, and so we acknowledge that sometimes the suffering comes as the consequence of the broken world that we live in. Third, he says that God will often use um, those times of suffering and pain in our life um, as a way of disciplining us to bring us back to repentance and humbling faith. Um, and that's exactly what God is doing here in the book of Ezra, is that he is disciplining his people um, to teach them to come back, to repent of their sins, to come back and to follow him with all of their heart and with all of their life. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's, it's so crucial that we understand that, that God does that, right? And you may say, well, isn't that mean of God, right? Isn't that mean that God would do that? Um, but any of us that have children and understand that sometimes discipline um, is not the thing that we want to do, but it's what's for their best uh, for our children, for the people that we care the most about. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews chapter uh, 12, talks about this. He says, for the discipline, uh, for the Lord's disciplines, the ones that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. But then here at the end, uh, I, love, I love the way that he phrases in just the, the wisdom that's here. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that true? 
Like if you've ever been disciplined, it ain't whether you were a little kid or even today, like at work and you, you mess up and you get the discipline of the boss or whatever that may be, right? It's painful for that moment. There's embarrassment. There's hurt that comes with that. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. And there's this idea that God is going to use that uh, in our lives that may seem painful for the moment, but he's going to use that to discipline us. And then finally, um, Keller says that God, um, that, that pain and suffering happens as a consequence of the free will that he has given each one of us. And so what he means here by this is that, is that, okay, God has created us not to just be robots, right? But he has given us um, some responsibility in how we live our life. He's given us responsibility in the world that we live in, right? And so, like, we all have jobs, we all have careers, we all have things that we do. But we also make choices every day, don't we? Um, the way we're going to treat somebody, the way we're going to care for somebody. And, and so part of that nature that God has given us, that responsibility he's given us, that freedom that he's given us to make those choices, sometimes people will take that freedom to in, inflict pain and suffering on other people. And that's just part of the world that we live in. That's just part of what it means to have that freedom. And so some of that is the consequences of that. But I think the beautiful thing that we see here, though, is that through all of those things, whether it's a, a pagan king or whether it's a... 70 years of exile and being away from your home, that God uses all of it to accomplish his plan and his purpose. Uh, in verse, in verse uh, 2 and 3, again, what does it say? That they're going to go back and they're going to rebuild the house of the Lord, right? Let's not forget that's the main point of what's happening. The action moment here is that the people now uh, of God are going to gather together and they're going to go out and then they're going to rebuild the house of God. Okay? So, what I want us to do before we move on to the next point, um, I want you to get back in your groups and give you a, a, a few more minutes to discuss this question. Um, who have you counted out for God to use? Right? I think sometimes um, we in our minds can count people out for God to use. We can say, and, and it goes something like this, we'll say, man, that person's just too far gone. There's no way God can reach that person. I, I've tried, right? Um, there, there's no way. Um, sometimes that person's ourselves, right? We said, man, I have, I've done too many things in order for God to be able to use my life in any sort of meaningful, valuable way, right? So, so, so who have you counted out? Who have you said is outside of God's sovereign reach in order to, to use for his purposes and his good? Uh, or secondly, what situations uh, are you currently going through or have you gone through that maybe you've even counted out from God being able to pull you out of or God being able to use those in your life? Okay, so take... Take a, I'll give you a couple minutes. That's kind of those are deep questions. Um, I realize I got to work on on getting some easier questions. But the third foundational truth that we're gonna we're gonna kind of we're gonna see as we are looking through uh, this first chapter of Ezra is that not only does God keep His promises, not only does He use whomever or whatever He chooses to to bring about those promises, that plan, that will that He has, right? But finally, we're gonna see that the Lord moves in us. To be obedient to His will, God actually, um, even though God is completely sovereign and completely in control and could absolutely do all of it without needing human intervention, He chooses to use us, which is astounding when you think about that. God chooses to use shaky, broken vessels in order to bring about His perfect good will. Um, but we're going to see that even even in this text. Um, so so join with me in uh, looking at verse five. It says, uh, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites. These are some of the 
uh, the families of the 12 tribes, right? And these, these are the, the leaders. The, uh, we we got to kind of put ourselves out of American mindset. So when we think of fathers of houses today, that may not have a whole lot of meaning to that. Um, in this context, though, these were community leaders. These were the, the elders. These were the ones that uh, carried responsibility and authority within the communities. And so um, God, they are raising up these people, right? And it says, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Right, and we see that God here is stirring up. He's prodding. He's 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 moving in the hearts of these people. I think it's important that we understand that, um, you know, in the in the Old Testament, when we see the Spirit of God moving, right, uh, predominantly it's 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 really this kind of external uh, sense of the Spirit coming in situations. Um, and stirring up and moving people. It's this kind of external God sends His Spirit down um, and, and, and in these different situations to move people. Um, we just saw that God was moving or prodding the heart uh, of this pagan king, and now He's going to do that to His people. But as we move into the New Testament, uh, and as Jesus had said, you know, there's that verse in the New Testament where Jesus says, it's better for me to go that the Helper, that the Spirit may come. And I've always like, I've always that's always one of His verses that I'm like, are you sure, Jesus? Like, I know you're sovereign. I know you're God. But are you sure it's better? Like, it seems like if I was able to just hang out with Jesus um, every day or to know where he's at, that that would just give me greater confidence. Um, but what Jesus is, 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 is teaching his followers is that, no, when we have the Spirit in us, it's like having Jesus with us every single one. He's no longer bound by the flesh that he was when he walked this earth, but now he can be in the hearts of all his believers. So, so in the New Testament, um, when the Spirit comes in, in the book of Acts and his God is starting to work, this, this becomes a very internal thing. And so maybe you've heard people say it's like the moving of the Spirit, or I sense God's Spirit in me moving or telling me to do something. Um, that's just kind of how it is that, that God works and moves and so in the old testament in our picture here in ezra it was literally like the spirit of god was coming down and starting to awaken or starting to to stir up um, these people um and, and a good picture i like to 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 use to help us understand that because a lot of people are like well what does it feel like to have the spirit say something or feel the spirit in your life right um and it's kind of a a big question especially in the church world of like how much is the spirit? How much is, you know, is it all about this, that, and the other? Um, and I like to say it's, it's like that tug on the shoulder, right? And, and if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, Jesus has promised that his spirit will come and live inside of you, right? And so if you've been a follower of Jesus for any season of life, you kind of know what that tug feels like on the shoulder, right? It's like you're in a situation and it's like, man, you just feel like God tugging you one way or another. And you can't explain it, right? The situation may not even make sense. It might be like, well, that's kind of crazy. Why would you want me to do that? Uh, and a lot of times it's only later we look back on those situations and we're like, oh, that's why he wanted to do that, right? Um, it's kind of that, that tug on the shoulder. And, and that's what, what is happening here is that God is starting to move in the hearts of some of his people in order to raise up. Now, you'll notice that, um, you know, when we think that the people are free and, and, you know, if we were exiles and we were living in a foreign country and, you know, the, the, the ruler of that country came in and said, hey, anybody who wants to go back and build a house um, for their God to go back to their homeland is free to go. What do you think people's, re- what would your reaction be? What do you think people's reaction would be? 
If, if a king who had been conquering you and ruling you for 70 years just came in one day and said, hey, anybody wants to go back to their homeland, you're completely free. And in fact, I'll even send supplies for you to go back and rebuild. Right, it's a trick. Okay, that that makes sense, Tom. That's just question everything. No, um, right. I think most of us would think, "Oh, I'm down for that." Right? This is good. Like this is what we want. But yet, we'll see later on that there's only a remnant. There's only a small group that was actually moved to action. There's only a small group out of that that actually answers this call. Um, we'll see over the next few chapters that God actually there's actually three waves of people coming back. But even at the end of all of that. There's still a group that decides to stay in Babylon. Um, they've, they've adapted on, and we'll talk about this next week, but they've, they've taken on the comforts of captivity. Um, and so they have been convinced by those comforts. And so they're, they're content, right? But there's a small number of people that God is, as, as God has called them, that they are moved to action. They are moved to action. And, you know, I think this is an area that we can really draw a lot of parallels in our life because I know for myself and a lot of people who would would raise the banner of being a follower of Jesus, right? Sometimes we are convinced by the comforts in our life more than the call of Christ, right? I mean, think about that for a second. You know, Jesus tells us that we should go and to, to love the poor, um, the widow, the orphan, the outcast, right? But yet we're like, man, that's messy, right? That is messy. Like, what if what if I get involved in, in something I don't want to be involved in? Or what if my kids get in with that group of kids and I don't want them to influence my kid? And what, how do I draw the line there? And what if I what if I go and do this? You know, and, and we we allow the comforts of what uh, we live in sometimes to overrule the call that God has given to us in our lives. And so, um, hopefully that, that that will be an encouragement um, to you as you think about man, what is it? What is it that God has called each one of us to do? And am I allowing my comforts to keep me where I'm at? Um, but as we move down through this passage, I, I think another uh, another significant point that kind of comes out um, in verse 7 and 8, right? Um, look what Cyrus does. This is amazing. I was talking with Holly about this this morning. This is crazy. So in verse 7, it says, Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out um, in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the, the uh, prince of Judah. Right? Do you see what's happening here? Right? This king, this, this king Nebuchadnezzar, who came in and destroyed the temple, destroyed the place that God's people would meet with him, the presence of God dwell, destroyed it, took all of the valuable things that were inside of that, charted it back to his homeland, back to, to Babylon, and then put it in the temple of his false god. So that, that God's, almost as a picture of saying, because now I, Nebuchadnezzar, have conquered God's people, so my God has conquered your God. Right? But look how God sovereignly moves, right? Yes, yes, it, it's been 70 years, but God is even moving in the heart that Cyrus would even take these things that had been for a season in this pagan temple to this pagan god um one of the commentators said this he says every piece of uh the temple items was a witness of god's sovereignty and care and continuance of his covenant and i think that's that's a beautiful thing to think about you know it goes through and it lists all of these pieces 30 30 basins of gold and a thousand basins of silver all these different pieces four uh five thousand four hundred 
pieces of gold and silver. And each one of them was a testimony to God's sovereignty. Yes, it didn't happen uh, probably in, in the way that the Israelites had hoped. It, it took 70 years, but it all was a testimony to what God had done. And so I think where we, where we draw this in our lives is to think about, right, what is the task that God has put on our lives that seems humanly impossible, right? What is those things? Maybe that's just, maybe that's a, a family or a friend or a relative or somebody we care about. Maybe it's having a tough conversation and we're like, there's no human way possible this person's going to listen to what I have to say or give, or give any sort of consideration to Jesus, Right? Uh, or maybe it's something God is asking you to do in your life, in your family. Whatever it is, though, we need to realize that when God promises it, that we can trust and believe what God promises um, because it's God who ultimately gives that promise. Um, Hudson Taylor said this, and I think this is, this is cool. Um, we think about sometimes our limited uh, resources and, and our, our lacking of things to do what God's called us to do. He says, God's work is done God's way. Uh, I'm sorry, God's work done in God's way will not lack God's means of support. You know? I mean, think about think about this this morning. This is a beautiful picture. I was thinking about this. We're sitting here in a building that doesn't belong to us, that we would have no, no means at this point as a church of paying for a church building, but God has allowed us to be in such a building in this community to spread the gospel, um, and God's done all of that, right? We were We were practically asked to be here by the people that own this building. And that's God, I believe, trying to accomplish his plan that he's called us to do to bring this message of rescue and restoration that we've talked about for, for a year now to this community. And now God is opening up, using his resources to open up a place for us to be right smack dab in the middle of this community that we can reach for his purposes and his plans. And so, and so today... Uh, I just want to kind of wrap up with, with a few applicational thoughts to think about in, in our lives. And then we're going to have uh, one question that I'm going to, we'll have about five minutes to discuss together, okay? Um, but the application today is, one, what is it that God is tugging on your heart right now? Is there something that you know, uh, maybe you've known for a while that God has been asking you to do. There's something that's like, it's a God-sized thing. Right, and, and maybe you've ran the other direction. Maybe you just kind of ignored it and tried to stuff your head full of other things. But what is that that he's moving you toward today? Right? Um, and, and for some others, maybe it's, am I, have I become too comfortable? Right? In this situation that I'm at, am I becoming too comfortable? Am I too comfortable with where things are and I'm not willing to step out to do what God has asked me to do? Right? So, so the question is, where is God calling you to move today? And only you can answer that, right? That's the beautiful thing about the Spirit is that He speaks that to you, not to me. Um, you know, as, as a person that God has, has called to, to lead this body, can it tell me the will for Heath's life or the will for Tom's life or for Joe's life or for Holly's life or for my mom's life, right? The Spirit tells each one of us what He wants us to do. And so the application is really, I can't stand up here and tell you what that is, I can just encourage you to go do it this morning. And to go do it understanding that it's a sovereign God who's calling us and pleading us. And we're going to continue to see the actions of the sovereign God as we continue to walk through the book of Ezra. Okay? So as we wrap up, though, I want you guys to take uh, like five minutes and I want you to talk about this question right here. Given our discussion today, um, what has been your view of God's sovereignty? Okay, God's control of everything that happens in the world. Big question here. 
Um, and what role does that play in your life, right? How much do I daily, constantly allow God's work and control to make an impact on my life?